Good morning. Uh, what a joy it is to uh, be with you this morning. My name is Nathan Knight. I'm one of the pastors along with Joey at Restoration Church in Washington, D.C. If I've never met you, uh, it's a great pleasure to be back here. Um, I, I learned so much from this church, and I think this morning one of the things I've learned already is in the work of church planning, you do a lot of hard work of, of trying to, to plant something, to start something, and you don't take a lot of time to look back and see what God has done. And so, so thankful to be here this morning to just take a, uh, just a couple days, a few days to look back and be reminded of what God had done in us for his glory through you. So thank you so much for your investment in us. I hope that this sermon will be an encouragement to you, a way to give back to you. And so let me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that now our hearts would be attentive to it, that Christ would be glorified that we would worship him in the fullness of his splendor. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, John F. Kennedy once said that Washington, D.C. is a town of northern charm and southern efficiency, which is to say that it's not charming and not efficient. Uh, and I think that's a true statement uh, based off of the city where I live in. Uh, I have a kind of love-hate relationship with my town. Um, I love the city because it's full of resources. It's uh, a beautiful city. There's fun things to do. You get people that come in from all over the world there, and they want to make the world a better place to live. Uh, we have uh, in our church 125 members from over 20 different ethnic backgrounds. I just love that about our city. Uh, but I also loathe the fact that our city just really bludgeons people into a lot of things that are difficult. So, for instance, uh, it's difficult for the fact that uh, the employers will actually treat their employers oftentimes like uh, slaves because they know there's a thousand people that want those jobs and they just work them to death and send them on to the next person. I loathe the fact that uh, because it costs so much to live there that people uh, will be slow to have children because they can't pay their bills. Uh, I loathe the pervasive racism that continues to exist. There's two DCs uh, that we have to live inside. These are difficult things. And I think Restoration Church, our church itself, feels this all the time. And as a result, there's this kind of uh, up and down sort of rhythm to the city. You know, people are feeling good about this for one moment and then feeling bad the next. And so there's this, other words we might say, there's this kind of lack of peace that exists inside of Washington, D.C., uh, and so this vicious, vicious cycle is perpetuated in most everyone you see walking the streets. And guys, I think this is true of us here in Wake Forest too, isn't it? We're just lack of peace, this kind of up and down, rising and falling of peace. And so when we left here 10 years ago, what we came to do in Washington, D.C. was to bring peace to a beleaguered city. Peace that we learned here in this church. And so we point people, we gladly point people to the hope of a greater city that has within it a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. What we do, friends, at Restoration Church, the most important part of what we do as a church is we point people to Christ who himself is our peace. That's all I want to say to you this morning. That's the big idea. Christ himself is our peace. We're going to look at that from Ephesians chapter 2. So I hope you go ahead and turn there. I'm just going to share with you uh, what's going on in that passage briefly while also sharing with you a couple stories both outside our church and inside our church so as to reveal to you, to remind some of you and maybe awaken to some of you to this need for the peace of Christ himself. So again, we'll look at it here in Ephesians 2 uh, verse 14. I'm going to read verse 13 as well and it goes like this, God's word. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. See, there was this sort of issue going on apparently in the church in Ephesus where apparently these, it was made up of largely Gentiles, non-Jews. And so these non-Jews, these Gentiles, either felt either one, they felt they were better than, better than the Jews because you know, maybe the elites, the Jewish elites put Jesus to, to death, they crucified him, or maybe they thought themselves to be second-class citizens to the Jews. But either way, Paul is emphasizing uh, in these first three chapters in Ephesians, he's meant to combat these issues and remind them of who we all are in Christ Jesus. That's what he's doing there. And he reads and, and he says in chapter 2, verse 15, we see this, this uh, issue addressed head on when he says, now there is one new man. And what he's saying there is basically there's one new mankind. Uh, so it's, he, he kind of gets after this notion of the fact that there is now no longer Jew nor uh, Gentile. There's male nor female, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's a new mankind that has come because of the work of Christ. Our native land is the new Jerusalem. That's our home, and we're all citizens of it. Now to be sure, the, those distinctions of male, female continue to exist, Jew, Gentile. But Christ Jesus defines the deepest reality of who we are. Those of us that trust Christ, he is the deepest reality of who we are. So this emphasis on Christ himself as our peace, it is critical, absolutely critical to our understanding of our identities as Christians. Critical to understand that. So we look back in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, a little more context here, and we find out who we actually are apart from Christ. What he's like he is for those of us that is Christ that doesn't have that peace. And we find six things there. That he says that those of us, when we don't have Christ, this is who you are. This is who we were without Christ, when we didn't have his peace. And he says six things there. He says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. We once carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. So basically what Paul says there is we were following what I call the unholy trinity of sin, Satan, and society. Just following that, hollow on the inside, no real life. But then Paul even goes even more into this aspect of who we are apart from Christ. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 12, that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, we learned five additional things that also described us. We learned there that we were separated from Christ, which means we had no anointed king. We learned, secondly, that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which means we had no common wealth amongst God's people. We learned thirdly that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. So you think about all those truths that we love and so endear ourselves to. I will fight for you. I will be with you. We had none of those. And then it goes on to say, fourthly, that we had no hope, which is to say we had no prospect of entering into these great uh, truths. And then lastly, he says that we were without God in the world. Without the creator of the universe calling us his, we were without him. And so friends, if we were to attempt to construct a dire picture of what it would be like to not have Christ, to not have peace, we couldn't come up with a more dire picture than what Paul has laid out for us here. And this is true of all of us, even if we were in Christ before we were in Christ, this was true of all of us in the room. And it was only because of who? Ourselves. We chose this. And of ourselves. 
And so this explains, friends, the lack of peace. It explains the hopelessness. It explains the hostility that exists between us and God and to each other. You know, everybody thinks that Washington, D.C. is the only city or maybe the worst city of hostility or hopelessness when you watch the news. It's easier to think why because you watch that and see. But, friends, I, I believe that if you were to go and talk to your neighbor, knock on their door, and begin to ask them some penetrating questions about their life, I believe that what you'll find is this same lack of peace in them here in Wake Forest. Same lack of peace, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of hostility, because as they say, politics is downstream from society. Washington, D.C., to say it another way, simply reflects the lack of peace in the world, that hostility, that hopelessness in the world. There's this instinct, I think, within all of us that thinks of the American dream, that if we just get a job, we get a nice car, we get a house, we get some kids, then we're going to have peace and things are going to go good. We might even claim Jesus but we don't look to him alone for peace. And so we go on look for it, looking for it in other places, maybe trying to add Jesus here and there. So when you think of Washington, D.C., you probably think of politics. Let me just give you a picture of the people that pursue this or actually are functioning in this lack of peace in my city, and then I'll share with you one story of the one that found it in the church. So uh, in my city, many people think of politics, but there's on our side of town, inside the district, northwest side, close to the National Cathedral, these people, there's all kinds of other jobs that they have. These people are at the top of their um, uh, trades. They're lawyers, they're scientists, they're teachers. Uh, and I coach my boys' baseball teams in, an, in order to be with my boys, but also to get to know these other parents, these other people that live in my city that don't claim Christ. So I'll give you a, just a picture of a few of them that are no. These are personal friends of ours. Uh, there is, for instance, my friend Bill, who works on the jet propulsion of the rockets for NASA that sends them into outer space. His wife flies jets for, the American, for American Airlines. And then there's uh, my friend Jack, who like every four per people you meet in uh, D.C., one out of four, you're going to run into a lawyer in D.C. And Jack works for a great big law firm that's very well known. Then there's people like Frank, who's a wine distributor in D.C., he's a good friend of ours. And there's, then there's Hannah, that's a well-known pediatrician in the city. Then there's Anna, who uh, works for Amazon in the city, and she's able to actually bring her dog. She's very excited about that. Uh, and then there's Sam, who works in the Treasury Department. All of these good people, they're, these are, they're kind, they're good human, they're fun to be around. They live in single-family homes. Their children are maxed out in the best schools and activities. Uh, and if you look at them, they seem to be fine. They seem to have no needs. But if you scratch the surface, or if the surface scratches them, you quickly find this lack of peace, this hostility that exists in their lives, this hopelessness. Because here's the thing about D.C. It's a city of achievement. It draws the best people from all over the world to come in. And so in order to keep those jobs and keep rising, you've got to work a lot. Which means these guys and gals don't get to see their families very much. And so they get paid a lot. They feel good about their titles. But they numb it all by taking these amazing vacations to Italy and to France and to all these other places. But you don't have to work hard to see the exhaustion that is on their faces. And so there is this buddy of mine, Sean, that also is not in Christ. He calls himself a liberal Catholic. He cusses like a sailor. Uh, I coach baseball with him. He's a great guy. Uh, he says of the people in D.C. that they have golden handcuffs. In other words, they have pure gold something expensive. They have jobs and titles and money. 
but they're cuffed. They're hopeless. They're not at peace. So there's that hostility that exists that Paul talks about, following the course of this world. That's what they do. Uh, Carrying out the passions of the flesh, living like the rest of mankind, having no hope and without God in the world. They're in golden handcuffs. And they keep looking to try to find hope and peace in other places, handcuffed, and they can't seem to get out and find that peace. They keep turning to all the wrong things, more degrees, another job, whatever the case may be, and they never find that peace. It doesn't work because they're not paying attention to God, not paying attention to their own choices themselves. And then the same kind of thing exists even inside the life of our church. So uh, just because we are in Christ doesn't mean that we don't lack peace at some level, but the difference is, is we know where to go to get it, right? So let me tell you the story briefly of Ruth. Ruth is from Switzerland. She's got a PhD in biology from Oxford. She got a job at the National Institute of Health thinking this would be it. This would give her peace, give her meaning. And she came to our church and she sat in our church for a time. She came from the Anglican tradition and she told Joey and Paige, I will not join this church. I think membership is ridiculous. <laughs> she had it all though in the eyes of the world. She worked, she had degrees, she had status, but she lacked any real peace. She lived in this kind of hopelessness and hostility and yet she sat at the preaching the singing and the praying of the word, week after week. She went into uh, the homes and the coffee shops of people in our city and people, women especially, just massaged Christ into her soul. And you know what she found? She found Christ, a peaceful Jesus. She no longer began to look to other things, especially her job, to define her, to give her peace. She didn't even necessarily, she joined the church. She began to make disciples of the church. She joined to love the church. But those things were not the ultimate thing that brought her peace. The thing that brought her peace was Christ Jesus, the one that that laid his life down for her. So much so that she was willing to take a job in Switzerland that was below her current status because she wanted people in her native country of Switzerland to find that same peace. She didn't need to measure up anymore. Didn't need to measure up into her own expectations, her industry's expectations. She found the thing that so many people in Washington, D.C. and Wake Forest don't have. She found peace, contentment in Christ. So I want you to notice, guys, by looking at that text in verse 14, chapter 2, Paul says it's not just Christ is peace, it's Christ himself. You see, that is our peace. He is not just the source of peace, not just the way of peace. He is peace itself. Friends, peace is a person. It's Christ Jesus, right? And we, we recall Isaiah from long ago, Isaiah 9, right? That he was going to be this Christ, this Messiah was going to be what? The prince of what? Peace, right? And, and when he was born, we can think of the angels singing, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, we can slide down there in chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus came to preach peace. We, we think of Jesus in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives do I give, he says. In fact, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And how is it he did that? How is it he overcame the hostility how is it he overcame that hopelessness and brought in peace? Well, you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 13, as I read. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
by the blood of Christ. And so here's how that peace gets uh, found up. This is how, how it comes together. So our sin, as we saw, has separated us from God. That's the reason we lack peace. And so God sent his only son into the world. And he redeemed us, Christ did, by living the sinless life, dying a sinner's death on the cross, buried, rose again on the third day, that those who repent and believe on him, they now are reconciled. The deepest reality that has separated them, that has caused that lack of peace, now he bridged the gap in order to bring us back to God, the one of whom we were made for. He made it possible so that now in verse 16, as it says, reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ himself is our peace. He is our peace. He overcame the root of all hostility. He overcame the result of our sin, hostility between man and God. And now we have peace. Those of us that are in Christ, we have peace, which is to say the hostility is gone between us and God because of our sin and even between us and our fellow neighbor. And now hostility gone, love is in. That's what peace is. The absence of hostility, the presence of love. And so, brother. Brothers and sisters here at, rest, at uh, there it is, I did it, at North Wake Church. You did it last time, don't laugh. Look to Jesus. He's your peace. Don't look to your job, to your husband, to your wife, to bring you ultimate and true peace. Don't look to your children, don't look to the prospect of a husband uh, or a wife. Look to Jesus himself to be peace. Peace. Isaac Ambrose says it well. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him in the heaviest of pressures. Christ. And so, beloved, if you were to ask us, what is it that gives your church peace? What is it that has sustained you over these 10 years? Your church, Restoration Church in D.C. I would read you this verse. Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. He's it. We preach Christ, we pray Christ, we, get into, uh, we sing Christ, we get into community groups, discipling relationships, and we just try to push Christ in on each other. It's not all these other things that define us. It's Christ. He's bridged that gap, and we push each other in to Jesus and that peace, which is why our mission statement reads, making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. We're so happy. He's the one that gives us rest and contentment. And so just recently, we've had a girl at American University give her life to Christ. She became a Christian, and now she's spending her summer in Australia spreading this peace. We have Jeffrey and Monica that are members of our church. They've been married not yet three years. She has battled ovarian cancer. He has battled MS. And both of them, if they were here, they would tell you, Christ is our peace. He's it. And so that's what we give people. Christ is our hope, he's our great reward, he's our peace. Nothing else will satisfy you. Northwake, you need to know that, right? The, the peace that you're going to find, that you need, that you want, is not ultimately going to be found in the music at Northwake Church. It's not ultimately going to be found in Larry Trotter. It's not ultimately going to be found in any of these things but Jesus. He's the one you're made for. And so look to him to find peace, to find wholeness, to find contentment. He's the one that bought you for himself. And friend, if you do not know Christ, or if you are kind of adding Jesus plus something else, my Bible reading plan, my prayer plan, my prayer that I prayed when I was eight, whatever it is, if you're trusting something else other than Christ alone for salvation, trust Jesus to find peace. He's the only one that will sustain you and give you life and hope and peace. Trust him. And if you desire to do that, tell somebody. 
Tell somebody, I believe this morning I found the peace of Christ. He's the only one. None of these other things. They'll all fail me, but Jesus won't. I want him. Tell somebody and find the hope in him and enjoy him forever. And beloved, soon enough, this peace that we have all tasted, we'll get to see it face to face in heaven. It'll come soon enough. And you'll be glad that you persevered, trusting in Jesus to bring you home. Let me pray for us. Remind us that. Lord Jesus, you are our peace. We confess that we try to find peace in a thousand other things. May we find peace in you. And thank you that it is true. Whether we acknowledge it or not, it is true. Christ is our peace. You have laid your life down that you might take it up again, that we might be with you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'm going to, can I have the crafts come up too? Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, we want to pray for these guys. So Joey and Paige and your girls want to come up? Andy and boys? Are your girls here? Okay, good. 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 You know, um, let me encourage you, church. Uh, you might consider adopting Restoration Church as your family's church plant and pray for them. Um, go visit them, uh, encourage them, take them out to dinner in D.C. Um, take, yeah, love on them, love on them. Um, but right now we want to pray for them and the, the peace of Christ upon them. So bow with me, please. Um, Lord, we love these, these families. They are a joy to us. And we love the good work that you've just begun in them. And I I am eager to see what you're going to do in this next decade. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that the peace of Christ would be present in their home, that it would be present in, present in these two brothers and these two sisters, the way they love each other. Pray that it would be present in these, these marriages, in the friendship between these families, that the peace of Christ would be evident to all. We pray that the peace of Christ would be upon Restoration Church, that it would mark those members deeply, and they would truly be a bright light on a lampstand, a city on a hill there in this great city of Washington, D.C. So, Lord, bless these. Uh, even today, later on this evening as they return, keep them safe in your hand. Use them greatly. Uh, we trust them to you. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, North Lake. I've been tasked with the privilege of cleaning up Nathan's mess. Just kidding. Uh, I'm thankful for my brother. Um, God's grace through me, not only uh, to me, not only through this church, but even through uh, these brothers at Restoration. So it's great to be in partnership with them, and it's really good to be back among a people who uh, were so dear and so influential in helping shape me by God's grace to become the worshiper and the husband and the father and the pastor that I am today. And as I say that, perhaps you're tempted to think, bro, I don't even know you. The North Wake that I knew when we were here uh, a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, there's a lot of that North Wake that has since gone. And they've been flung out and they've relocated 
And yet the North Wake that I'm, I'm looking at this morning is a North Wake that has labored with us. Maybe not, the investment hasn't come through uh, close friendship, but it's come through consistent prayer. And it's been such a joy to meet uh, some of you this weekend uh, as we've been here and just to hear you say, our family has been praying for you. Uh, more than you know, depositing those seeds, begging uh, the Lord to accomplish his purposes in us and through us has, has proven in some ways we, we believe to be effective. And so thank you for the ways you've uh, prayed for us, you've come alongside us. I'm, I'm mindful as I have the opportunity to meet with church planners that are coming into Tampa Bay that are ready to get started and just sitting across from these planters and hearing the lack of investment that they have received from their sending church. Uh, it, number one, it saddens me. And number two, it makes me grateful. Literally, every time I leave the meeting, I try to send Larry a note that just says, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the investment that you brothers made in, in us and in our families. And so um, I, I trust and I pray that uh, that investment not only is shaping me, but it continues to shape Covenant Life Church. Uh, as Nathan and I were talking about what we wanted to share, just in light of looking back and celebrating 10 years of God's grace, we wanted to make sure that the accent was over the one whom is worthy of the praise. It's not us. It's Christ. And we also wanted to, uh, I think, just pull out values that North Wake has modeled for us and that we tasted and experienced here that has shaped and formed our ministries in both D.C. and in Tampa. And so we came to the realization that the centrality of the gospel, the message that Nathan just shared about how uh, because of the work of Christ, we now are, are brought into peace with God. He, Christ, is our peace. And that has been so influential in shaping us, but not just the centrality of the gospel, but also how that gospel then creates a people. It doesn't just, the gospel isn't merely only God and I, but because of great grace, we're saved out of isolation and into a people. And when Jesus is your peace, that doesn't just change your relationship to God, it also changes your relationship to one another. So I hope to just remind you today of just some of the evidences of grace within a gospel-shaped community, and I'd like to pray uh, very quickly for our time. God, we are aware that we need to hear from you, and that's why we gather. We gather to remind one another of who you are and what your word has said. And so would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached? And we trust and we believe that your word is sufficient to accomplish your work among your people for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel-shaped community. Perhaps something comes to your mind about your experience of what that is, but I, I want to be clear of what I mean when I say gospel-shaped community. I do not mean this laissez-faire convenience that dominates relationships today. This sort of uh, relationships that are, that are contingent upon having perfect circumstances. As long as people don't wrong me, then we can have good friendships. I'm not talking about relationships that are built on comfort or safety. I'm not talking about relationships that demand that there never be any difficulties. That type of community can be found everywhere. And there's nothing unique about gospel shaping to that community. In fact, what we would find is maybe where that community is present, there may even be a veneer of this gospel central language, this gospel centered language. 
That's not the community that I'm talking about. I believe the Bible makes clear that there's a kind of community that's better than that. And it's better than that because in Christ, community is not about our preferences. It's not about our conveniences. It's not about consumerism. It's more about how do we endure together? How do we discipline ourselves together? There is an aim to this life and we are headed to glory. And so we we come together because of the gospel, fueled by the gospel, with gospel ambition to help one another get to glory. That's the gospel-shaped community that I'm talking about. It's one that's not marked with a thin layer of veneer of gospel language. It's one that has a vein of gospel steel that runs through it. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. And I believe as Bonhoeffer writes, and people have read it throughout history, what they have found is there's, there's a ring of authenticity to what Bonhoeffer says. It's almost as if Bonhoeffer has gotten into each one of our minds and has been able to write down our cravings, our longings for community. Listen to what he says. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift for the lonely individual is easily disregarded or trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. If someone asks, where's your salvation, your righteousness, you can never point to yourself. You point to Christ and the word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures us of salvation and righteousness. We are alert as possible to this word because we daily and hunger Uh, Because we daily hunger and thirst for righteousness, we daily desire the redeeming word, but God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated with other men. When one person is struck by the word, he then speaks it to another. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who will speak God's word to him. He needs this again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help but begin to drift from the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and a proclaimer of this divine words, uh, of this divine word. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christian word in his brother's mouth. His own heart is often uncertain and his brother's word is sure. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, okay, church planting celebration, I have no desire to go and be a part of a church plant. I just want to, I want to say to you, there, there were people when we showed up to North Wake that had no intention and probably will never be sent out by this church, but they played a vital role in helping our family taste some of this gospel-shaped community. And once our family tasted it, the enjoyment of God that we were able to experience, but also the longing for other people who had never tasted it before was one of the main prayers we prayed. Lord, we want to go to Tampa to help people experience in some measure what we've been able to taste here. If you're a member of this church and you will never be sent out, I hope you understand that how you pursue Jesus and how you live in community will will affect the, the churches that are planted from here. And so for the glory of God, Allow the gospel, continue to do what you have done so well for many years. Allow the gospel to shape and to anchor this community. And if you're, if you're here and you're thinking, I long to be sent out, 
I don't know what it looks like to go to another place in order to help see something created that's currently not there. I can just tell you that the best training grounds is for you to give your life to pursuing Jesus and loving the people in your church family. Because what you do now will, will set the, the pace and will set the trajectory for your life together if the Lord were to send you from here. And so as I'm, as I'm thinking about this community, I hope you just don't hear, okay, this is something that was good for you way back when or something good for other people that are going out. No, this is very good for all of us. And I believe Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, helps us see this kind of community, that there is a community that results from the good news of the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And if we're going to understand Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we're just going to look at three points this morning. But if we're going to understand sort of those three exhortations, those three points, we have to understand what he says first. He says there's a foundation from which we are then exhorted. Now, if we miss the foundation and we run to the exhortations, then we enter into a very, a very brutal, very heavy, very dutiful Christian existence. And that's not what the author of Hebrews is aiming for. He's actually saying, because there has been something that's been accomplished and purchased for you, you now are able to do this. And what's that foundation? What's that basis? It's exactly what Nathan just talked about. How because of Christ, there is now, we are now, Christ himself is our peace. We are now at peace with God. And because of that, we're giving the following three exhortations for how this then informs our life together as a church. Number one, together, draw near to God in faith. Draw near to God in faith. After, listen, listen, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's all of, because of what Christ has done. Because you have a substitute, you have an atonement, because you have a great priest in Christ, because you have those things, this doesn't just inform now how you relate to God, it informs how you relate to one another. And in verse 22, this is what we see. First point, draw near to God in faith. He says, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with the pure water. And the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us just to our own devices to understand what does it mean? How do we draw near to God? How is it that we can do that together in faith? Well, the plural pronouns should remind us that this is something that we ought to do individually, but it also should remind us to have other people in mind. So it's not just make sure you're doing Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It's also make sure that you're expecting other people to do that. Make sure you're encouraging other people to do that. We want to be a community that are drawing near to God in faith. You'll see there's four conditions that he gives us. I don't have time to go through them all, but I at least want to tell you what they are in verse 22. Four means, four conditions in how we draw near to God in faith. First, we draw near with a sincere desire. Second, we draw near with a confident assurance. Third, we draw near with cleansed hearts. And lastly, with purified bodies. Our bodies washed with the pure water. If we were to flip to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, we would see the author of Hebrews saying, See to it that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so one of the best ways we believe that we can draw near to God in faith is that first, that first point, with a sincere desire. More than anything else, one ambition in this life, I want to pursue Christ more than anything else. 
I just wonder this morning if you've gathered here and that is the longing of your heart. This is a Psalm 27 type 4 longing. A longing that springs up deep. I'm not talking about just from the behaviors of the Christian life. I'm talking about deep within the wellspring of the Christian soul. Longing up to say, one thing that I have asked from the Lord, this one thing that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is Psalm 63 type yearning. This isn't things that you can manufacture. This is something that comes just from leaning in and pressing into God over and over. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David over and over saying, I long for you. I earnestly, I eagerly thirst for you because of your steadfast love. Your love is better than life. And my lips will praise you. I long to be a pastor who can look at the church that I have the privilege of serving and say, follow me as I am doing this. But if I'm honest this morning, I am not here. I want to lean in. I want to draw near to God in faith. I want to be like Paul, Philippians chapter 3. All things are counted as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I long to pastor a church who leans into God as their source for everything, to draw near in confidence. And I know, even as I say that, I go, how can I draw near if I know that I'm failing at this, I feel like I need to run and hide, but it's the message that Nathan just shared with us. That's why I draw near, because of the work of Christ. And experiencing the grace and the forgiveness of Christ just primes the pump of my heart to long and to want him more. I appreciate what John Piper says. He says, let's be clear about, about what this means. If you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys of this life. Family, health, food, friendship, sexual relations and marriage, jobs, satisfaction, productivity, books, music, art, sunsets, architecture, and hobbies. Let's be clear, these are good things that come from God, but they pale in comparison to the glory and the goodness of the giver. I believe that one of the reasons that so many within the church are so frustrated with their Christian life and their Christian experience of this life is because they love the things of the Christian life more than they love and desire the God of the Christian life. Where's your heart this morning? Do you long for more of God? One thing, if I could ask, Let it all fade away. I I want one thing. Give me more of you. Is this your desire? Is this your experience? North Wake Church, cultivate this in yourself and help one another cultivate this. It reminds me of my good friend Aaron who came to Covenant Life Church after uh, failing morally in his marriage and after a moral failure also sort of Uh, train wrecked his ambition to keep moving up in the corporate ladder. And talking, uh, getting to know and meet Aaron, uh, beginning to hear his story, grew up as a preacher's kid, heard this gospel uh, message over and over, and yet it was nothing but duty to him. 
There were so many other greater joys in this life that were worth, worth pursuing than Jesus. And just through constant exposure to the word of God and the care of others who would enter in and remind him over and over that there is one satisfaction in this life that pales in comparison with every other and it's not found in this life. It's found in the person and the work of, of Christ. It's the provision of God for your soul. And over the last three years, we've seen this brother began to find more and more satisfaction in God. And it's restored his marriage by the grace of God. And it's given him a purpose much bigger than climbing a corporate ladder. So much so that now he's going around the last few weeks, we've had uh, either four to six families who have shown up, family units who have shown up who have just said, I've heard about this church because of uh, this brother who's going around telling me about what God has done in his heart and inviting me into this. Northway Church, draw near to God in faith. But secondly, hold fast to God in hope. Hold fast to God in hope. You see this in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. There's a lot of things that fight against us from drawing, uh, holding fast to God in hope, the trials that we face, the temptations that we face. But the closer that we get to glory, the more we ought to meet together to encourage one another to hold fast to our hope. And how is it that we encourage one another to do that? Well, he tells us, hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10 encourages us, God is faithful to his promise, and because of that, we hold fast to him in hope. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. If he were, he were to diminish his glory, and in diminishing his glory, he would no longer be God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, so then when, when God makes a promise and he says, I will remember your sins no more, or Hebrews 13, 5, when he says, I will never leave or forsake you, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, when he says, I will use the pain that you are going through for good. Covenant Life Church is seeking to be a church that's scouring the Bible for the promises of God, not merely so that we can know them, but so that we can then apply them to one another in our church family. Northway, what if your aim was to take one of the promises of God and begin to match them with another brother or sister in your faith family. Do you know what would happen? Over the course of doing that time and time again, North Wake would begin to continue to be the church that holds fast to God in hope. These promises will prime our hearts to long for and live for heaven. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. One of the greatest things you can do to cultivate gospel-shaped community is to meditate, to marinate, to glutton yourself on the word of God so you can mine out every one of his good promises. So you can preach them to your soul and then you come along other brothers and sisters that are struggling and you preach them to theirs. And you remind them that there is a glory and there is a God who has been faithful. The one who called you will be faithful to get you there. Does your heart sound like it is better than gold? Your word is precious to me. We, we're seeing this in and through the community at Covenant Life. You walk into any, any home that's hosting a community group, and what you'll find is there's all types of struggles that are taking place. But by God's grace, over 10 years, we are learning as a people for how to listen and to love and to empathize and then to lay God's promises over the struggles of infertility, over the struggles of loss, over the struggles of addiction, over the struggles of 
of guilt and disappointment. Helping families welcome foster children, making preparations to adopt, and we're praying that, oh, there would be more. The last point. Together, we motivate one another to love. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the ha- as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. We motivate one another to love. It's the context of community that this happens. Drawing near to God is a community project. Treasuring God above all else is a community project. Holding fast to God is a community project. You need one another in order to live out this, these exhortations. We need one another to help each other. That's the whole picture. How do we motivate one another to love? And one of the, the, the clear Uh, assumptions in this passage is that one of the ways we do that is by gathering together. And so that's why the author of Hebrews exhorts us, don't neglect gathering together. As some are in the habit of doing, it will be a temptation to form a habit to, to begin to overlook the priority of gathering together. We just encourage you not to do that. What Christ has done for us has ramifications for how we focus not only our eyes on God, but how we focus our eyes on one another. In Christ, we belong together and we need one another. And so don't give up. Don't forsake the gathering. Fix your focus on one another. The word there, spur, how do, how do we spur, stir one another up or spur one another up? It's, it's a negative term here. It means to irritate or to provoke or to exasperate. By God's grace, I have three girls. There's so much sweetness in our home, but there's also, I understand what it means to irritate or provoke or to exasperate. My daughters know which buttons to push in one another's lives in order to get a certain response. I just wonder how sweet it would be if we began to know what buttons to push in one another's lives that would result in people loving good works and spurring them on to good deeds. And so this is the church that we hope to be. Faith toward God and love toward one another are stirred up and preserved in our gatherings. And I just want to say that this is the church that we were shaped by. You were the church that helped us understand this DNA. And so if along the way you've begin to think me showing up is just not important or when I'm there, me exhorting other brothers and sisters to love and good works is just not important. I just want to remind you, it makes all the difference in the world. And even as Joey said, in a countless number of ways that you don't even see. And so thank you for being faithful as you encouraged us to consider the gathering and to keep a priority on showing up and loving one another and encouraging one another while we were here, not just sneaking in and sneaking out, but seeking to do one another spiritual good. By God's grace, we've seen uh, a new sister in Christ who began to just sort of sneak in and sneak out. And And in the sneaking in and the sneaking out, she was confronted with the people who wanted to love on her and let her linger. And just in the consistent not not forsaking the gathering, making it a priority. She began, though thinking she was a Christian, she began to show up, under, sit under the preaching of the word, gather with the singing of the saints and praying. And by God's grace, in a marriage that was struggling, she began to see that her hope was in Christ alone and she'd not yet found that. And she would just say, my testimony is seemingly unspectacular, but it's 
It's ordinarily sweet. Just showing up week by week, being shaped by this type of community that seeks to do one another spiritual good. And so the covenant by which we belong to in Christ creates a community, and that community now, because of that community, we belong to each other. And I just want to say it's, it's infinitely good belong, to belong to Christ. If you've forgotten that this morning, it's infinitely good to belong to Christ, but it's also infinitely good to belong to one another. Let's pray. God, you are gracious. We're thankful for your spirit and we're thankful for your word. And I pray that he would take this word and would accomplish his great purposes for your glory among Wake Forest, in D.C., in Tampa, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for allowing this church to be an example and a model for so many.